I'd like for you to follow with me, if you would, in 1 Corinthians, several verses out of chapter 5, and then several out of chapter 6. I think we will read them together now, and then refer back to them. First in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2. As we read, you'll understand um, that the church in Corinth was Paul's toughest church. They were um, out of the most godless, wicked city if you can believe it, in the Roman Empire. The Romans even used the name that they would label an extremely debauched, debased people or person. They would say, you're a Corinthian. That was a label of sordid behavior. And so, right in the middle of this is probably a fairly small church, I don't know. But God planted His flag there and started a church. We'll learn immediately here, verse 1 of 5. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, the heathen, that someone has his father's wife, stepmother. You have become puffed up or arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. I and my part... Though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." Let me just stop there. That's an obscure verse. Several places Paul has mentioned delivering deeply wicked people to Satan. Now here, as bad as that sounds, it is clear that this is a redemptive move. And the word flesh can throw us a bit. In this case... There's several words for flesh. This word that is used here primarily means and primarily is used for the sinful nature that we're born with. Not this. So, Paul is saying, and I don't understand it completely, but Paul is saying 
Let him bear the brunt of what it means to be this far gone from God that it will be redemptive. He will seek cleansing and deliverance from the flesh, not this physical body, but the innate, inbred, inborn inclination to sin. So even this terrible, that we're not real sure what this act means, to deliver, it seemed it was only the apostles that had this authority to deliver to Satan. But even in this case, it was redemptive. It was to save, to deliver, to ransom, to renovate, to transform. Now if we look at 9 of 5, I wrote to you in my letter, and this apparently is a letter we don't have, God not seeing fit to preserve it. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters. Then you would have had to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, malicious gossip, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. We'll end there. Now in chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, he rebukes them in 1 through 8, for having lawsuits among them. Fighting in the church, fighting among believers, and then they go to unbelieving judges and lay out all their dirty laundry and ask an unbeliever to make a judgment between Christians. And he said, you're already defeated. You're, this is terrible what you're doing. Then in 9... Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Then finally, verse 20, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now, I've had to skip some scripture that's a little explanatory. But I want us to look at, there's three things here that I want us to see. Three words. Gutter. 
Grace, glory. First, gutter. Again, Corinthians were legendary for their wickedness. And the list we have in 6, 9, and 10. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to read it and give the meanings of all of these labels that are given to people. Maybe not everyone. Do you not know that the unrighteous, those who have no righteousness, the word starts with the letter A, which is without, having, not having. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What does inherit the kingdom of God mean? It means two things. Experiencing the kingdom of God by the indwelling of the Spirit of God in our lives today, helping us, giving us grace to walk against the wicked current of this world and being members here of a heavenly kingdom. Paul's told the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, no longer here. We are then told plainly these kinds of behaviors, these labels will keep you out of the kingdom of God here. You cannot be a Christian and do any of these. Second, it will bar you from heaven. Period. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators. That's sexual immorality between unmarried people. Nor idolaters. That doesn't only mean bowing down to false gods and carved images and wood and stone and so forth. But it means putting anything in my heart above God. That's idolatry. Nor adulterers. That is sexual immorality among at least one partner who's married. Someone else. Nor effeminate. This is a graphic enough word that I'm not going to give it to you. It has to do, and, and it seems redundant, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals. It is describing graphically different roles within this kind of a relationship and goes fairly graphic. It's interesting that even in a same-sex relation, there's technically a dominant and submissive partner as it is with a man and a woman. Now, I'll get to some things here in a minute. Nor thieves. 
nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the gutter. We see it everywhere. We see it rapidly encroaching on us in our culture as a formerly Christian culture is battered down, watered down, swept away, undermined. And we are, we are seeing, and most of us are stunned, distraught, as what in the world is gone on? What's happened? It's very, very, very simple. If you go down to the intersection out here in the front of the church, there's a green light and there's a red light. And we know how to use those. When the person sitting there receives the green light, the other direction receives the red light. When we give the devil the green light, we give God the red light. And contrarily, when we give God the red light, you leave me alone. You stop crowding my life. You stop saying this is wrong. I'm free to do whatever I want. We give the forces of wickedness, the devil, hell itself, the armies of fallen angels. We give them the green light. Whether it be a nation or whether it be an individual's soul. One person alone. You give God the red light, you're giving the devil the green light, and you're going to get everything he brings. So it's, it's a very, very, very simple answer to what has happened to us. We have said we don't want God. Okay. We don't have God. Which means no goodness, decency, kindness, mercy, forgiveness, grace, friendship, true friendship, love. We have become and will become again individually or as a culture when we say no to God, we become snarling, snapping fiends. It's exactly what we become. And there's no break against it. Because we've said, I don't want God. Okay, there's where we are. All of these things, God said too. And I want you to listen to me here. We are the best at relabeling acts, behaviors, practices. We're really good at relabeling. These are merely 
bad choices. Or these are diseases. I still remember the very first commercial I saw on this subject in Portland, Oregon, when I was in seminaries watching the news. And they had some woman come on and she's walking slowly down the sidewalk and the, and the fall leaves are blowing and all that stuff. And she's walking slowly along and she says, I am the daughter of a missionary couple. That somehow gave her the credibility to discount Christianity. I'm the daughter and I was taught that alcoholism is a sin. And she takes a couple of more poignant steps and says, well, I'm here to tell you it's not. It's a disease. I sat there and I thought, man, I don't know if I said anything to Liz or not, but I thought, what's God going to do now? They've changed what he said. He's wringing his hands. He's worried. I don't think so. If God said something sin, it's sin. It's not a disease. It's not some kind of emotional disorder, though those crowd around all these kinds of things. I'll tell you, I don't know how many people, even in professing Bible-believing churches, oh, I, I believe the Bible. Do you really? This identifies all of these different acts as sin against Almighty God, banning me from His favor and from His presence. We, and I don't know, I don't have any, I don't mean to boast at all here, I don't have any trouble with this. If God calls a sin, it's sin. I don't care what 50,000 people line up and tell me. It's sin. Do you know what the good news is? It is good news that it's sin. That's the best news we could hear. It's sin. Why? Because God's in the business of fixing sin. That's His specialty. Actually then, to have something defined as not a physical disease or whatever else, which, let me make this clear, we're in a fallen world, God cursed this world because of sin, and He said, you're going to have trouble, you're going to have disease, you're going to die, you're going to have all kinds of stuff. Well, all of those kinds of things, God never promised that He'd get rid of. He didn't promise that we would get rid of every disease, and even every emotional disturbance and distortion that we suffer under, and the scars from bad upbringing, whatever. He never promised to get rid of those. He said, I'll give you grace, I'll help you with it. But when it comes to sin, 
you can't find a being as ruthless as God when it comes to sin. And he obliterates it, eliminates it. He doesn't, he doesn't put a hat over it and try to keep the smoke from coming out. I can't describe it well enough. But God wades into sin with his flaming sword and ends it. That's who he is. So it's actually, it's actually a promise of victory if God defines something as sin because he gets rid of that. And he gives wonderful victory over it. God declares this, all of this, is as sin, which therefore makes us accountable. You know the reason we relabel it. The reason we relabel everything as something other than sin is it excuses me from accountability. I can't help it. I got a disease. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. But sin is my fault. I did it. I knew what God wanted me to do, and I did the opposite on purpose. So, man, it's, it's a nice kind of a strategy to just redefine it. But God won't let us do that. And we might think, too, we need to go read, I think it's Mark 8, it's in three, at least three of the Gospels. But there's a similar list here that Jesus gives. And he said this. Here's another relabeling that I forgot to mention. Well, I'm born like this. It's just the way I'm wired. Jesus said, and he gives a whole raunchy list. And he said, murders, hatred, gives quite, quite a rundown, and then says, and all kinds of sexual immorality. That's primarily what Corinth was dealing with and what Paul was dealing with in the church. Jesus said, all kinds, that's all kinds, all kinds of sexual immorality comes from the heart. Not the genes, not biological, from the heart. Now I'm going to trust Jesus that he knows. He knows hearts. And he said, that's where that comes from. But again, he can fix it. Which is the second point. Grace. Notice here. After 9 and 10 of 6, bad list, gutter list, then you look at verse 11. This is such a contrast. And it's the contrast of God up against sin and rebellion 
and all of the pollution and perversion that comes with that. Such, Paul said, were some of you. Some of you that I'm writing to and that are reading this used to be neck deep in these things. You practiced them. And you were. You were this. Not only what I do, but what I am. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and through or in or by the Spirit of our God. Everybody in that list and others, in 9 and 10, Paul said, there were people, there are people that are reading this, who were in those categories in 9 and 10. And notice this. Again, this is the Word of God. Such were. Such were some of you. Not still are. It's past tense. It's done. It's changed. It's put away. Now, this is just, I can't necessarily say that this is biblical, my opinion, okay? Though virtually every opinion I have is. But, I choose not to use the term recovering. I don't like it. Well, so-and-so is a recovering alcoholic. So-and-so is a recovering child molester. So-and-so is a recovering... Paul didn't say that. He said, you people were homosexuals, thieves, covetous, wicked, swindlers. The whole list. And you're now recovering from that. You were. But you're washed, justified, sanctified through the atonement of Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit who did a work in your hearts. You were. We have a you were gospel. There's victory. Now, I do have to correct or not correct, but explain. There are obviously, depending on these kinds of lives that they lived in the past, plus the environment in Corinth, they had to be on special guard that in some cases, others don't have to be. Obviously, if I have been a hardcore alcoholic, don't be hanging around bars. You quit. But God's the one that gives you the grace and the strength and the power to quit and stay quit. I, I obviously, I think, also see in Scripture and in people's lives, there are 
maybe what Hebrews was referring to, besetting sin. Some people have certain sins they're more vulnerable to committing and more inclined to than others. Very quickly, um, just something that's kind of mentioned here. I mentioned this to someone the other day. There are people that you know are wired in such a way they smolder and and nurse something for years, some grudge, and they're vindictive, and they wait for their chance, and they strike, and they do it. They they are consumed with that. I remember in high school on the cross-country team, I do not remember what one of the guys did, whatever it was, it must have been bad enough that we all got together, about seven of us or, you know, eight of us, and decided we were not going to sit with him at lunch. Fix him. Next day at school. This was the night before. I honestly, honestly, by the time we got to noon and lunchtime, I honestly could not remember what it was we were supposed to be mad at him about. I really couldn't. Now that doesn't exonerate me. I've never had that long grudge nurse keep stirring, keep the pot boiling. I've never had that. But I would get so mad that I was literally blind. I mean it. I forgot what I did or whatever, and it lasted 15 seconds, 20 seconds. It was over. Maybe not for the person that was bore the brunt of it. But hey, I was fine. Let's, let's go on. One's as bad as the other. But some people tend to different kinds of sins. Some people are vulnerable to some that others just don't seem to be. But nevertheless, if God calls them sin, they're sin period, which is the first place we go. The first treatment is salvation. Then for scars and memories and things of that sort, there's grace and that's gradual and it's part of maturity. But the root is not disease. It's not biological. It's not psychological. It's not emotional. It's sin. It's moral and spiritual. That's what's the matter with us. Now, they were washed. And here's, here's an interesting word here, or tense of this verb in the voice. It's called middle voice. I don't need to go into, there's passive voice, which is just something done to me that I don't necessarily cooperate in. Active voice is what I'm doing to someone else or something else. Middle voice is the word here. You got yourself washed is what this word means. You were washed, but not without your cooperation. Not without me confessing, I'm dirty, I'm filthy. You need to wash me, Lord. And I trust you that that's your will and that you are able. I don't care what our sin is. God can deliver and forcefully deliver. 
He doesn't leave us. How many people, I think about this, Jesus was illustrating what he could do. How many people that Jesus touched, and it says they, they crawled to their feet, and they dragged one leg for the rest of the time they were alive, but they were healed. No! When Jesus healed somebody, they were healed. He said, Lazarus, who'd been dead four days and already reeking, come out of there. And they then kind of re-embalmed him and they put fans on him and they heated him up. And they, no! He walked out. The only thing that they had to do was unwrap the grave clothes that were on him. Sometimes there is a bit of unwrapping of the grave clothes that are the remnants of what we were into. But he was alive. Not partly alive. He's really alive. Justified means to be put right in the sight of God. Sanctified means two things, really. Probably in this case, both set apart from all that's in this world. I'm, I'm different. I'm changed. And made pure. Clean hands and a pure heart is what David said, God's after. And he said, who will stand in his holy place? And who will enter into his temple? He meant both of those senses of the kingdom. Who can go into the house of God literally in this life and live a Christian life? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. And then who, who will ascend unto his holy place? That's heaven. He that has clean hands and a pure heart. That's what God's after. But he can, he can do it. There's nothing he can't do. Nothing. Finally, verse 20. You have been bought with a price. Glorify God. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The same body, the same mind, the same hands and feet, the same mouth that cursed God and poured forth Filth. God can purify, cleanse, change. And when he changes my heart, remember Jesus is the one that said, what comes out of your mouth is coming from your heart. Out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. So what comes out of here is the clear indicator of what's in here. But when God changes this, we change. My filthy, cussing, foul mouth was gone. I left it by the side of my bed in my bedroom in Eugene, Oregon. And it quit. And if there was a besetting sin, that was it. 
for me. I'm here to tell you, there's nothing too hard for God. Everywhere in Scripture, been noticing lately how frequently God, and of course this has been under attack forever, but how frequently God uses as the laminated credential that He keeps in His wallet. I have a little credential here from our denomination. And it says that I am an approved, ordained minister. Okay? I'm supposed to carry that around, I guess. I don't know what for. But at any rate, it's a credential. God's got a credential. He always presents it. I made heaven, earth, the sea, and everything in all three of them. And I did it by saying it. That's God. There's nothing he can't do. Nothing. Nothing. Maybe I'm just looking for an excuse to tell this short story. It's got to be short. But I just saw something on the, the other day. I don't know. It was National Geographic. Whatever. You know, all the brilliant people of the world who all know what, you know, God can't do and didn't do and it's a fake and whatever. There's some frog in Alaska. And in the winter, it goes into some sort of hibernation. It freezes, and I mean it freezes solid, and its heart quits. Its heart stops. And then, when spring comes, and thaw comes, its heart stops and that, that's, its heart's been stopped a long time if you're in Alaska. And it, start, it starts to beat. His brain comes back on. And I talked about how scientists are desperately trying to figure out how that happened. How does this happen? What in the world is this? So that, and of course, an evil end, so that they can freeze people you know, cryogenics, and then thaw them out down the road. And they can't figure it out. And I think, I, I sat there and watched that and I thought, you know what? I think we know God. I think God's got a sense of humor. He gave us one. And I think he sat there and thought, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to make a frog <laughs> that freezes all winter. Its brain and its heart shuts down. And I'm going to watch those guys who don't think I exist and do any of this try to figure it out. Now, I believe in cryogenics when it comes to six, seven-year-olds. Freeze them, thaw them when they're ready to go to college. <laughs> Saves you a lot of trouble. This is God's Word. We stand or fall on what we do with it. Let's bow our heads. Tanner, if you'll come and dismiss us with prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard your word this morning and 
Lord, I pray that we as your people would recapture a few things. I pray that we would be a people who recapture an understanding of your truth, that we wouldn't succumb to the pressures around us to accept the morality of the world around us, to accept the rights and wrongs that people think that um, are the way things are, but rather that we would recapture your word as the truth that we stand upon. Lord, I pray that we would also recapture a correct and good view of you. We heard this morning of the people who had been changed. Pray that we would recapture that idea that we could be changed. I could be changed. So that no matter where we're at, across the spectrum of, well, I'm doing good with God or I'm not, that we could see there's always, always, always the potential to accept your grace, accept your forgiveness, and accept a way forward that looks the way you want it to look. So Lord, I pray for their hearts in this room who, no matter where they're at, that we would recapture those things and that we would stand on your truth, as our pastor said, and that we would look forward into our future with a hope that you will give us the grace to do what you call us to do. Lord, you have a high standard for us, but it's not a standard that is unattainable. You want us to strive, but not to try to earn things. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make us into a people who, who reach after that life that you call us to, and we trust that you'll give us grace and power along the way. Pray this all, just thankful for your word this morning, thankful for your truth, and we take it with us today as we go throughout the rest of our week, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.